Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. So welcome to Victor's Children. I'm joined today by three guests I'm really looking forward to uh, having a discussion with about the question of the socialism we need. You know, socialism is something that is perhaps more in the air these days um, for a lot of people than it, it used to be, but there are a lot of questions that arise from that. So um, I'm really looking forward to this uh, this discussion. So I've got three people all based, I think, in Toronto at the moment um, to be part of this discussion. I've got John Clark, Simon Desai, and James Graham, and maybe we could just uh, do introductions in that order. Yeah, uh, so uh, I'm John Clark, and I was for many years an organiser with the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty. Uh, I presently hold the position of Packer Visitor in Social Justice at York University. Hi, I'm Saima. Um, I am currently in Toronto on Dish With One Spoon territory. For the last five years, I've been the editor of a magazine called Briar Patch, which is based in Treaty 4 territory in Regina and has for 50 years been reporting on social movements and grassroots politics. Right now, I'm on a one-year leave from Briar Patch, resting, living in Toronto close to my loved ones, and working another job. Right now, I'm the project manager on an academic research project called Infrastructure Beyond Extractivism, which is looking at how do we do a just transition in a way that restores Indigenous jurisdiction to the land. And I'm James. I'm uh, also based in Dishworth Lundsman territory in Toronto. Um, I'm a writer, artist, um, an abolitionist social worker, and I do housing and harm reduction research. Thanks, all. So uh, I think a place to begin would be just to talk a little bit about socialism and what we mean by it, because the word can refer to a number of quite different things, uh, different ways of organizing society. Some that have existed in the past, a few that exist today, and others that haven't yet existed in history. But in, in so-called Canada today, I think more people probably, um, if you ask them what they mean by socialism, how they understand it, they would essentially say something like, it's when the government does things for people. That probably would be the most influential understanding, whether they think that's good or bad. And then there are certainly some people who identify themselves as socialists who understand it that way. Um, but I think the, the, the word socialism is really associated with trying to name something that isn't capitalism. And so there's a struggle over what that actually means. I would say it's part of the broader battle of ideas in society. So I guess I'd like to start us off by talking about as socialists, what kind of society do we name when we say socialism? What kind of society is necessary, possible, and worth working towards? Well, then I'll perhaps begin. Uh, I mean, I think the thing about 
the thing about socialism, I think the point is well taken that precisely because we're in a period when some people are beginning to gravitate gravitate to notions of socialism, uh, the sort of the sense the you know the Bernie Sanders sort of uh, it's a bit like Denmark or Sweden sort of uh, approach is 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 what a lot of people have in mind, and that, in some ways that's a healthy instinct to want to to want to put limits on uh, on on the neoliberal agenda. But if we're talking about socialism. We must be talking about a society that is not just uh, the Nordic plan. We have to be talking about a society in which there is uh, collective ownership, uh, in which uh, in which there is uh, a real empowerment, and which exploitation is uh, is is removed from. Um, and it seems to me as well um, that there are decisive questions about socialism, uh, in the sense that it isn't just sort of some plan that is adopted and put into place it, it it must come out of a mass struggle a revolutionary struggle and so it must be shaped by that struggle uh the mass of people who engage in that struggle and the organizational forms that they take up have to be the the basis for the creation of uh of a socialist society and, and decisively as well i think we also have to recognize that if we're talking about anti-capitalism in the canadian context we're also talking about anti-colonialism we're talking about uh, uh, we're talking about fundamentally reversing the uh, reversing the, uh, the the colonial process and that's an integral part of socialism here thanks john it's a bit intimidating to be in a a podcast with you because I feel like you've been doing socialism for decades and uh, I feel like a, <laughs> I've just reinforced all my mistakes but never mind <laughs> um yeah I think John has covered the basics to to give a little bit of context about where I'm coming from I didn't grow up as a socialist and I didn't grow up in a socialist family I grew up in a relatively wealthy relatively right-wing family um and so I come to socialism relatively recently and I come and so I remember some of the things that convinced me to become a socialist and some of the things that moved me from calling myself just an anti-capitalist to calling myself a socialist. Um, and so to me and as to many other people, socialism at its core is um, a way of organizing life that aims at meeting human needs. Um, rather than a capitalist system, which is aimed at producing profit. Um, and so uh, production in a socialist system would be democratically planned to meet human needs. And so those two core parts are democracy and um, and the sustenance of life, the sustenance of what is vital. Um, to me, meeting human needs also includes having a non-destructive relationship with the rest of nature. Um, and so... I think to me, socialism inherently, you know, there's been many ways that socialism has been mobilized, many ways of organizing society that people have called socialist. But to me, my understanding of what the only way that socialism could truly happen would be democratically with a commitment to liberation rather than um, reconstituting new forms of rule over each other. Um, and ultimately, all of that leads to this idea that socialism is not just a hoped for ideal, but it's a necessity in that socialism is our choice between going down the path of capitalism, which leads to sort of inevitable extinction of life, human life and other life, or 
it's the choice to build another way to organize ourselves and live together. Those were both so good. Um, and so I'm very happy to be coming after um, both of those, but uh, again, a little bit intimidated as well. Um, and yeah, I guess just to start off, I think um, a lot of people do have that idea, right? That socialism is when the government does stuff for us. Um, and I think a big reason for that is that people really, really need help, um, whether it's healthcare, housing, social and mental health supports, food security, people are just really desperate right now. Um, and I think for most of us, um, you know, in our lives, we've only really experienced either getting some of these residual supports through the kind of crumbling state apparatus that provides them at sort of a bare minimum level or just nothing at all. Um, so I think understandably, right, people have this idea that that's the window of options. Um, yeah, I think there's this, um, you know, like we have uh, pretty low expectations, right, uh, growing up in a system like that. And I think it's incredibly possible for us to um, to have something maybe unthinkably better, um, but that doesn't feel realistic in our current context. Um, I think as things are right now, there's this sort of pit at the bottom of society, right, um, that we're all kind of aware of that just sort of swallows people up. This there, There's no floor uh, really for how bad things can get. Um, and I think the fear of ending up there, even for those of us who aren't in that type of immediate crisis, um, sort of keeps all of us in line. Um, in uh, the book, Health Communism, uh, Beatrice Adler-Bolton and Artie Bricant uh, talk about the surplus population and um, how we really sort of need to rethink and center um, people who've been discarded by capitalism uh, in our organizing. Um, and I think for me, um, the reason that I became a socialist was that I saw that firsthand. I saw the way that people are just sort of ground into dust and forgotten about in um, at the edges of capitalism. Um, and I think for me, the society that we need is one where that runaway train of, of human suffering is fully stopped, not um, regulated and sort of tinkered with, right? Like, oh, how much um, like needless human death is acceptable, but no needless human death is acceptable. Um, we need a society that doesn't leave people to die. Um, every human being deserves to be warm and safe and cared for and to have the ability to live their life to its fullest potential. And we need to end the phase of destructive predatory relations with the land and with each other. One thing that's just come to mind um, from what you said, that the title of the book you mentioned, Health Communism, um, just speaks to the fact that there is there are more people now using the, the word communism with a small c, you know, than I think used to be the case in this part of the world a number of years ago, in part because of the confusion around the word socialism. So that, and the word communism has more kind of radical connotations for some people. So I think there's been a kind of a reclaiming of, of that, which is also interesting. I think, really, I think we probably all agree that what matters not so much is the, is the words, but what people actually mean by them. And I don't know what the language of the next socialist movement is going to be. Um, it'll be both, I think, a mixture of things inherited from past traditions and, and new language. Uh, but there is the most important thing is to, to have clarity and, and to engage in a battle of ideas about the content, about what we actually mean. So I think coming from different places, we're actually all, I think, very much on the same page, the four of us in this conversation about what we mean. And we're talking about a society which is 
you know, radically different than capitalism in the ways that, that you've named. And that, uh, you know, one thing that probably is worth flagging is that in our time, we're more conscious of the fact that a transition towards socialism would have to be uh, one which was very much based on trying to uh, establish a meaningfully sustainable relationship with the rest of nature. And it's probably more, we have to be more conscious of that than any previous generation of socialists had to be because, because of the level of ecocidal destruction that capitalism has unleashed and that that kind of process would not be immediately, you know, uh, brought to an end by the beginning of a transition to socialism, but there have to be a process of damage control and repair as people try to, to dig themselves out of the, uh, the disasters that are, are piling up because of capitalism. I think also to your point about people thinking that socialism is when the government does things for people. I think that that has been a deliberate message put forward by the right very effectively in many ways, like, you know, large swaths of the right call people like Justin Trudeau socialist. Um, and they call any kind of like government intervention or regulation socialist. And so I think a lot of people are confused right now and they've confused the sort of horrible neoliberal governments that we live under with socialism. Um, and they don't, they yeah, they don't have the ability to see or, or aren't allowed to see through this thick fog of right-wing propaganda, what socialism really is and really could be. Right. Yeah, if I could say, I think as well that that, that sort of approach, and, and I think that's absolutely true, that the official discourse uh, sort of looks to very necessarily slander the concept of, of socialism. But whatever they, I'll use the term they, say about socialism, they they view it as something that even if they regard it as utterly reprehensible, their notion is, is that it's something that would be imposed on people uh, because the, the notion of people actually themselves being in control and is, is unimaginable to the, to the people who run this, this, this present society. But that seems to me to be the, the vital question about, about building socialism is that it can only emerge. I mean, Karl Marx talked in terms of of working class people uh, uh, getting rid of the muck of ages in the process of, of of struggling for a for a different society. And we're not going to build a different society based on somebody coming up with a better plan and and, and imposing it on people. That's the whole thing about socialism. It has to be won through the struggle that the mass of people actually in, in, engage. Uh, and so it's not just a question of, hey, would this be a good idea? Would that be a good idea? Which do you want to vote for? It's a question of what are you prepared to do to build it and to fight for it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, just adding on to both of those comments, I think my favorite example of um, the right wing idea of socialism being completely backwards is um, when Justin Trudeau bought uh, the pipeline with all that public money um, that was widely regarded as um socialist by his right-wing opponents but um you know i can't really think of anything more antithetical to my idea of like a socialist or communist society than you know spending a bunch of public money that could have been spent on you know solving any of the myriad of problems that are immiserating people right now instead to fund colonialism and resource extraction right um so we can really see how, how blatant that kind of misdirection is um, and 
I think uh, a big reason that communism has caught on is is sort of adding on to what John was saying that um, uh, the term socialism for some people is this kind of managerial um, approach to society of, you know, this class of experts, maybe even progressive experts, but who are still um, kind of calling the shots uh, while most of us just work. Um, and I think the idea of communism uh, is more and more appealing to people because it's it's hints at some sort of broader transformative change to all of social relations, a, a complete restructuring of um, how we interact with each other and how we work, um, what work means. Um, and I think especially in the um, ecological crisis that's becoming more and more urgent. Then I think you've, you know, touched on a number of, of really important questions. And one thing that then kind of emerges out of this is um, how we can best make the case for this kind of a society that we want to people who now recognize that, you know, that capitalism is something that we, we need to be rid of because of all the harm that it's doing, uh, but at the same time are full of doubt about whether what we're talking about is possible, right? Because I think we're in this, that's something that's really true of the moment that we're in, that the horrors of capitalism are increasingly obvious to people, but the confidence that the kind of society we're talking about is possible is, is not so much there. And I'm wondering maybe, Simon, since you've kind of identified as self-identified as the, the most recent um, person here to have switched from identifying as an anti-capitalist to being for socialism, whether you might want to start us off on, on that question. Sure. Yeah, I think what John has been saying about how socialism is necessarily something that is democratic from the start, rather than this idea that people have that first we impose socialist economics and then democracy follows from that or comes second, but actually that the only way that there could be a transition to socialism is through um, socialist democracy. Um, I think that is important. I lost my train of thought. <laughs> but I think that there's that idea that that socialism is not about a small group of radicals using the masses as an implement. It's about huge, huge numbers of people deciding together to radically transform society is really important. And I think part of the problem is that people don't have very much, if any, practice in working on that kind of transformation, of fighting for that kind of transformation, um, myself included sometimes. Like, I don't really consider myself an organizer. I've been involved in some campaigns and done some organizing, but um, I mostly make media, which is not the same. Um, and I think also one thing that moved me from, um, from being a anti-capitalist to being a socialist is understanding a little bit more about capitalism and understanding um, socialist economics. So I think that learning about how crisis, so recession, war, environmental collapse, what we're seeing right now where it feels like we're destroying the best of human achievements and culture, all of that is a feature of capitalism and not a bug. And that this insight that humanity will eventually be exterminated if capitalism is not replaced um, and understanding and not being surprised when capitalism 
enters a period of crisis and then scrambles to restore its legitimacy and shore itself up. Um, so I think one thing that that helped move me from, you know, growing up in a fairly right wing family and not being very politically engaged um, and then sort of coming slowly through sort of anti-oppressive politics towards socialism um, is learning a bit more about socialist economics. And I think that a lot of that stuff is um, being really usefully disseminated on social media these days. Uh, for example, I don't know, all over my social media, there's little infographics showing how over the decades productivity has increased while wages have stagnated. I think that's, you know, a really useful, uh, incisive socialist economic insight. Um, so I think disseminating those insights, it's, you know, it, it opens up kind of a can of worms um, in this discussion about what can be achieved through media and pamphlets and flyers and social media um, versus what needs to be learned in the struggle and through fighting. Um, I can speak more to the former because I make media, uh, but media is the thing that moved me. And that's part of the reason why I still make it because I believe that it can move others. Um, and I think, but also I, I believe that part of it is, um, is teaching people that that transformation is possible. And so, I don't know, I think the, the kind of David and Goliath struggles that we're seeing, a lot of the time people don't win and struggling is really hard, um, especially under the conditions that we live in where people are deeply underpaid um, they're fighting to keep their homes, they're fighting to keep their jobs and food on the table. They feel like they don't have time to fight and that if they do fight, they won't win. Um, but I think that stories of the ways that people have won, um, where tenants have successfully fought back against a landlord who is trying to evict them, those are really important. Um, and also teaching people how to weather defeat and teaching them that we're not going to win all of the time, um, but that this is a decades long struggle, even though it, you know, things need to urgently change right now um, and teaching them how to um, approach defeat and crisis strategically and with kind of this long-term thinking uh, where I, I spoke before about understanding that that crisis is a feature of capitalism and not a bug understanding that crisis will return over and over again, that we're in crisis right now and we will be in crisis again. Um, and to take that in stride as part of our organizing and part of our fighting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think it's really important that the whole question of struggle comes up uh, and, and is put so front and center in the, in, the, in the discussion. I mean, the reality is that if if this could be presented you know if if the some capitalist media institution said i've decided to play fair and give david's podcast uh, full play and you know get it out there and millions of people have access to it and we'll see where it goes uh, the fact is it would have a very important effect it would educate a lot of people but it still wouldn't be enough it, it would have to an understanding of socialism and, and an embrace of socialism by people is only going to be arrived at in the context of mass mass struggles. And, and that's what strikes me as so 
important about socialism at the moment, even though I acknowledge we have a few problems on our hands in terms of uh, in terms of how to put this forward. Uh, but I think that's the point: is we have a situation now where ideas of socialism have. Uh, well, I'd be hard pressed to find another point in history when they were more relevant than this. I mean, it really is it really is an incredible situation that we're in. I mean, it's been articulated here and it's quite correct. We are literally looking at the destruction of life on this planet. And 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 we're looking at uh, uh, the term polycrisis is being abandoned around and it, it has a certain validity. Uh, I mean, in in every way, whether it's biomedical, whether it's uh, environmental, whether it's economic, whether it's the question of global rivalry, it's all coming together. And it doesn't appear that it's going to get better anytime soon. There's going to be this crisis is going to deepen. Um, And that's going to drive people to struggle. And I think the idea of the idea of, of, of socialism and the idea of a socialist entity is to try to intervene in those things and to try to influence them. Uh, and right now there is a crisis. Yes, people are, uh, are looking at socialist ideas, but the immediate crisis in terms of movements is how to struggle effectively. Uh, because you've got all of these movements that, I mean, you've got unprecedented mobilizations taking place right now in Britain and France, for example, where people are mobilizing in larger numbers than ever before. But they're being organized around the basis of, you know, the good show, the day of action, the, 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 the massive demonstration. They're not, there's no real winning strategy being put in place that's actually fighting to raise the level of economic disruption and political crisis to the point where victories and gains could actually be made. And, and, and it seems to me that the ideas of socialism and the perspective of socialism can play a really vital role in actually intervening in those struggles and trying to and trying to trying to push them forward precisely because we're not trying to broker a deal with capitalism. We're trying to destroy it. And, uh, and that, that gives us, I think, tactically and strategically a, 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 an incredible advantage. And I think this is a period when those ideas can really resonate with people. And they can really have an impact on 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 the on the course of events. And I, I think it. I I'm absolutely convinced that in the next few years we're going to see a very large uh, uh, section of the population that embraces socialism. It's not guaranteed that it'll be enough. It's not guaranteed that we'll win. But I think those possibilities are there and they're being created. I mean, this is a time of incredible change when when the openings for socialists are potentially enormous. Yeah. <clears throat> Just to add on to, to both of those, I think um, the idea of radical change for so many people who are new to politics and who have seen um, things sort of stagnate for the worst over most of their lives, um, the idea of radical change does feel um, totally impossible in, in some cases, but I think uh, it's very necessary and I think very possible for us to make the argument that uh, winning socialism is actually far more possible than fixing capitalism. Um, I think uh, I, I talked a bit before about how the best we can kind of imagine under capitalism seems to be some kind of residual welfare state, but the conditions that allowed for the, the very brief um uh, welfare state that we had in North America were very specific and it's not coming back. And I think that's becoming more and more obvious uh, to most people. Um, and I think that's why you see so many people nowadays who 
start out not necessarily even thinking of themselves as anti-capitalists, um, but just trying to make changes or reforms maybe around like um, climate change specifically. I know so many uh, young people who are brought into politics just around environmental issues, and then they realize that, you know, the the structures that are available to us right now to uh, change anything are basically a farce. Um, and then from there, um, you know, you start to question the way that everything works. Um, and I think we need to communicate to people that, um, uh, you know, something better really is possible and that we actually have the the resources to fix, um, you know, the, like John said, the poly crisis that we're facing, right? There's, everything's getting worse so quickly because of, you know, decades and decades of just forcing workers to do things that we know are unsafe, forcing people to cut corners. I think I'm thinking a lot about the, um, there's the rail disaster that happened uh, in the U.S. recently. Um, and it was the same uh, policies the rail workers were trying to strike over because they knew, they knew that it was unsafe. And now there's like a whole town and surrounding area that's being poisoned. And there's just so, so many things like that that are going on right now where, um, it's not inevitable. And, um, you know, the working class is, is so full of people who want to help other people who want to develop the technology that we need to get out of, you know, the, the climate crisis who want to, um, you know, do these things that they have the, the skills to do that we desperately need, but they're being sabotaged by capitalism because it's a, a fetter on humanity. Um, and I think if we can really drive home both through, um, you know, like like media and through the the experience of of struggle, I think, which is so illuminating for this um, to people that um, not only is like a, a better world possible through socialism, but that it's really the only way for us to um, sort of emancipate ourselves from the, the constraints of capitalism that are keeping us from solving these crises. This is a slight reframe of David's question, which I think is a good one. But the question that's kind of been preoccupying me is, why today are there so many people who seem to recognize the ills of capitalism, but don't feel like it's possible to transform our society for the better? Like, I I, I agree with you, um, both John and Jamie, that... Um, that there is this growing recognition of the ills of capitalism. And I do think, you know, there's p probably been no time more ripe for socialism than right now, but I also feel like it's a moment of really profound despair and demobilization. Um, I see it around me. I feel it in myself as well. I feel less energy within myself for organizing and for fighting. Um, and I think understanding the reasons why people feel like it's impossible to transform a society for the better will allow us to better disseminate the idea that it is possible. So I agree that, you know, what we need to do is disseminate the idea that it is possible and involve people in the struggle to show them that it is possible. But I'm also interested in understanding the obstacles or roadblocks we're facing before we even get there. And so the things I'm interested to hear what you two think, I think one of the big things that um, has influenced the last couple of years and the feeling of whether or not transformation is possible is the pandemic um, and the sort of drain on everyone's 
health and resources and energy um, that the pandemic has been and that neoliberal responses to the pandemic have caused. Um, and I think that for me is part of the reason for this current moment of sort of despair and demobilization. But I'm curious what what the two of you think. What are what are those main roadblocks to people believing that transformation is possible? I can definitely relate to the the feeling of demobilization caused by the pandemic. I think um one of the last things I remember doing before the lockdown was participating in um one of the Wet'suwet'en solidarity uh, rail blockades. Um, and just being so exhilarated by that experience because, um, you know, it, it felt like for the first time people were coming together in actually sort of mass anti-colonial uh, solidarity, actually disrupting like the process of, of production while doing so. And, and that was, it felt so amazing. And I, it really um, was an optimistic moment. And then shortly after, none of us were um, allowed to go outside. So that definitely um, put a damper on things. But I do think the pandemic has also um, further illustrated a lot of the uh, contradictions that we're talking about. Um, I will say that I think, at least for me, a, a big barrier to thinking that socialism was really possible was that I don't think we... Um, we're certainly not taught socialist history in um, public schools, right? Um, or I'm assuming private schools certainly don't teach it. Um, any schools. Uh, and for me, what really clicked and made it feel um, like this was something we could actually do was learning about how many people, like, like millions of people, right, throughout human history in the past few centuries have um, like died in the struggle for socialism. And that was something I was completely unaware of for so long. Um, and I think when your understanding of history, um, and especially the history of the past few centuries, has all these gaps, right? It's just bad thing after bad thing, right? We're not really taught about the, the parts where people came together and like actually did even briefly create something that, that worked. Um, and, um, I think as necessary as it is, right, to, to point out the things that aren't working about uh, our current society, I think um, educating people about, um, you know, all the the much better ways that things have been and um, the brutality that has been directed at the people who have even temporarily built those um you know, uh, better structures uh, is very illuminating, um, even if it's also very sad sometimes. Um, for me, it made me feel like I was part of, um, you know, a historical mission that needed to be finished, not just for myself, but for everyone else um, who had, you know, suffered and, and died trying to fight for socialism. Um, it made me feel like I had a responsibility to them, I guess, to do what I'm doing now. I, I think that, I mean, the question of, you know, people's uh, consciousness, people's understanding, what holds people back, uh, it, it comes up and it's a really important question. And many of the things that have been talked about 
uh, I think, are true in terms of the things that demobilise people, though, though we are seeing certainly upsurges taking place in, in various places. And that's happened in Ontario with the education workers recently gave us a glimpse of, of, of some things that are possible. But I, when people talk in terms of, you know, people being uncaring or apathetic, I think they entirely miss the mark. I think what holds people back is this sense of inevitability. Uh, a sense that things can't really be challenged. And I've referred to this many times, I'll I'll never forget it, but I I went down to a meeting in St. Catharines, Ontario, with this uh, uh, around when I was involved with, when I was an organiser with OCAP. And there was a woman sitting next to me who was on uh, disability benefits. And and she said this, she said, which I thought was an incredibly honest thing to say. She said, "Um, I think the stuff you're doing is, fantastic i respect it so much and it's wonderful and such like but the way i feel is let's face it governments are going to do what they're going to do and there's nothing we can really do to change it and uh although i politically disagree with her and i think she's utterly wrong i think it was an incredibly honest and an important way to 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 frame things um because i must say by the end of the meeting she had a clenched fist in the air um but but uh it it really, I think, drives home the problem. But it, it's a problem. But contradictorily, uh, it's 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 also part of the dynamic that changes things. That seems a strange thing to say, but I think it's true. Um, I mean, I don't like to sort of point to foundational Marxist writings as some sort of some sort of guide that you have to base yourself upon in totality. You have to learn the lessons of the period, but. There is one thing that was said, uh, was written, actually, Trotsky made the point in his history of the Russian Revolution, I've always thought of this, I've thought of this many, many times, is uh, he makes the point that revolutions don't happen because people are radical and because people are far thinking. They actually happen because people are deeply conservative. People faced with incredibly changing situations will try to cling to the old ways. They will try to hold back. They will try to resist the 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 conclusions that 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 are threatening and and and, and dangerous. But that there comes this sudden moment when the changing of hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people just suddenly suddenly changes and there's this sudden leap. And you've got a situation where the people who were telling you nothing could be done and go away and we don't want to hear this stuff are more radical than you are. And uh, I think that's that's really what that's really that's really that kind of explosive quality to the class struggle is something that's really important because we are seeing these things breaking up. We are seeing these things flaring out. I mean, when George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis by the cops, you saw a mobilization that was one of the largest that's happened in the United States. Uh, But it was contained. Right. Obama played a pretty big role in containing it, actually, but it was contained. Um, And that seems to be to define the period we're in. We're getting these feelings of incredible restiveness and people are very angry and you get this sudden explosion. But the tactics that are, are adopted are generally controlled by people who want to work out some kind of compromise that's not there to be had. And so that energy is frittered away. And, and people return to a feeling that, like the woman in St. Catharines, that not that much can change. Uh, and that seems to me where a real socialist force could make a real difference, because we're not fighting on that terrain. We're actually trying to, to find ways to move out of that. Um, so, uh, again, I mean, 
I mean, I, I, I'm, it, it, there's no sort of ridiculous optimism is out of the is out of the question. We face a dire situation, and defeat is one of the possibilities. Uh, catastrophic defeat is one of the possibilities, but so too is victory. And 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 I think that 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 socialism is the only possible way in which we're going to move towards victory. I wanted just to come in on with a couple of thoughts on on the question that you asked, Simon, because I think, I mean, as we've talked about, obviously the experience of fighting and winning is really important to shaping people's sense of what's possible politically. But then another thing that shapes that sense of possibility is the memory of past struggles, right? Um, and the way those are transmitted or not transmitted so that people like right now, if you're a moment with a lot of people who haven't experienced uh, high levels of struggle that lead to, to victories, they also aren't part of living traditions that have passed on those experiences in the way that that you know, did, did happen um, you know, at, at different points in history. And so I think that it just in terms of trying to explain the moment we're in, I do think that's important that the, uh, the, the complete kind of uh, or almost complete severing of the ties that would pass down from one generation of organizers to another, some of those um, histories and, and experiences um, and, and their lessons. I think that's that's part of it. And the other thing I think it's just worth throwing into the mix as part of the the picture uh, is the world historical experience of Stalinism in the in the 20th century. The fact that um, you know so many people's hopes for socialism were invested in what I would say were not were non-socialist societies that were nevertheless seen as as socialist, and their collapse then you know shaped people's sense of historical possibility in a in a really significant way. So I think those are also dimensions of the the problem that we face. Rosa Luxemburg, so, speaking of, you know, not adhering too closely to historical Marxist texts, but she talks about how, you know, fighting for reforms is sort of a training ground for um, building up to revolution. And I think, you know, in the lifetime of people my age, things have mostly gotten worse, like living in Canada or North America. Um housing is more precarious or just, you know, totally out of reach to afford stable housing. Wages are stagnating. Work is more precarious. Life expectancies are down in North America. Like, you know, we haven't even really been winning the reforms. Um, And so, yeah, I think that is also part of this feeling of, of not knowing what it's like to win. And also when you are part of a mass struggle, like in the summer of 2020 or the educator strike, um, settling for less and not having that socialist analysis to help that struggle overflow its banks and help it, you know, not settle for, um, you know, merely tinkering with capitalism. I'm wondering if we could move, um, to the, the question of transition, um, I suspect we may be on again on the same page about this, but I think it's important to uh, not just talk about socialism as a goal, but talk a little bit about what it would be, what would be needed to actually make the break with capitalism and, and sort of transition to socialism, because that's a question where there's been you know continues to be quite a lot of uh, debate among people who do call themselves socialists. Anyone like to start us off on this? Well, I mean, I, I think that the um... I mean, I think that the, it, to me, it seems to speak to what some of the stuff that we've already we've already talked about in terms of, in terms of um, the the sort of the the formative process 
begins under this system. Right? Um, you actually have to start to have the development of uh, not just, I mean, a socialist consciousness, yes, but I mean, you actually have to have the struggles and the organizational forms uh, that, 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 are, that are needed to take forward the process of changing society, uh, to take forward a revolutionary process. Um, so, um, I mean, at every point, unless you believe, unless you're one of these people who believed uh, that, you know, we're going to win an election and uh, uh, we're going to have a few big demonstrations to uh, intimidate the other side and we're just going to introduce a program through Parliament of socialist change, uh, unless you believe that, there is actually going to have to be a revolutionary process. And, and so uh, the, the forms and the, the organisational forms that will be developed in that struggle will be the basis for the new system uh, in, in many, many ways. I mean, I don't want to throw out outlandish all power to the Soviet uh, uh, cries here, but that, I think, is fundamentally true. It's that, it's that notion of how we engage in the struggle and how we organise in the struggle begins to lay the basis for the change in society. And then once you actually have, once you actually have uh, power, once the once that once the, the revolutionary process has been engaged in, uh, that lays the basis for the kind of participatory activity that's going to be necessary to to actually reorganise society. Uh, on the basis of of, of not uh, uh, some uh, you know group of experts or uh, benevolent dictators, but on the basis of actually mass action. Now you um, touched on this. Maybe John, you could just pick up on the point a little bit. I think it's it's important to maybe zero in a little bit on the revolution question. Only I mean because, or one reason would be uh, we've seen, for example, the growth in the U.S., of the Democratic Socialists of America, and a certain kind of a politics that have become dominant within that organization, and that has some influence within you know, through the media um, on the left in, in so-called Canada. Um, you know, a politics which causes, very much calls itself socialist, but also very much rejects the idea of, of revolution um, and argues that, in fact, in the 21st century, um, that radical change you know, is, is possible, but on the basis of precisely what you, you briefly uh, dismiss, I think quite rightly, but maybe you could just elaborate a little more on your, on your reasoning there, because there may be some people listening to this podcast who are not yet convinced uh, that a revolutionary break is needed. Yes, uh, uh, certainly. I mean, I, I think that the, um, I mean, let me say that that I'm not uh, wanting to spit at people who have the notion that they want to win elections and make change. And I mean, there are many very sincere people who I would consider comrades and be prepared to work with who, who put forward that perspective. But it is a disagreement and an important one, and it has to be fought out and has to be debated to a conclusion and, and has to be challenged, I think. And I think what we come up against is that, um, is that those people who think that we're just going to uh, we're going to uh, win an election uh, and then uh, use the existing state structure to try to change things and miraculously neutralize the other side are just uh, are just fundamentally wrong. Um, the present rulers who uh, in this society are not just going to relinquish things. The power is going to have to be taken away from them physically. And that is going to be, in my opinion, literally a revolutionary, uh, a revolutionary process. Um, but it's also true that the existing state structure 
is just not going to be able to be used uh, to bring about socialist measures. You know, you're not going to be able to tell the cops at the 51 division, um, we had a revolution last Wednesday, so now we want you to go out and uh, arrest uh, developers instead of terrorising uh, racialized youth and beating up homeless people. Uh, it's not going to work that way. You're not going to go to the finance ministry and say, now your job is to reorganise uh, reorganize society along socialist lines. You're going to have to build a different kind of state structure and a different form of governance. And it's not going to be, uh, here I go again, but going back to the Paris Commune, it's, uh, it's, it's not going to be... Um, it's not going to be uh, a simply a question of electing people. It's going to be a very participatory process. And the institutions of this state don't lend themselves to that. It's going to have to be a different kind of state that's created. I showed up with more questions than answers, as usual. But, John, you were talking about how the organizational forms that we create now will lay the groundwork for a revolutionary struggle and will be in some ways the form that revolutionary struggle takes. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself or maybe David will tell me to <laughs> stop backseat driving here. Um, but can you talk more about those organizational forms? What organizational forms do you think are the ones worth investing our time and energy in? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously, uh, I think, impossible to... Uh, uh, you know, to, to sort of come up with some kind of blueprint. Uh, by definition, we're talking about things that largely haven't happened yet. Uh, so it's not a question of, you know, this is the plan. Uh, but what happens is, is that when working class people engage in struggle, uh, they find ways to organise. And uh, moreover, uh, the state seeks to, way, seeks to find ways to modify and contain those organizational forms. So as struggles break out, you do see, I mean, seeing it all over the world, the beginnings of kinds of assemblies. I think of the resistance committees in Sudan, uh, those kinds of uh, those kinds of sort of like very rooted, deeply, deeply within communities and deeply within oppressed populations, or actual organizational forms that can sustain struggle. I mean, we, we mentioned the education workers. I mean, absolutely, we should work with within the existing unions, but there's going to have to be organizational forms that actually develop rank and file power. Uh, had you had that in the case of the education workers, when they said, well, uh, Ford has withdrawn his rotten legislation, but he'll only do so if we agree to go back to the bargaining table and negotiate a substandard contract. Had there actually been a level of organisation amongst those workers uh, that, had, that, that were saying, no, wait a minute, that's just not going to happen, uh, it would have changed the dynamic of the whole thing. And, and the potential was there. I mean, there was... I mean, even the leadership of the component, the education workers component, was deeply dissatisfied. You saw huge numbers of workers actually voting the thing down, uh, but there was no capacity to actually put that anger into effect. And there could have been and there should have been. And that's what I'm talking about, those kinds of forms. And then once you actually have a society uh, that has moved beyond capitalism, that level of organisation becomes uh, the basis for organizing, not struggle, but organizing a new society. I'll just mention there was a, a very good uh, article recently published on the website uh, 
the journal New Politics, the U.S. left journal, uh, about the resistance committees in Sudan, or about more broadly the struggle in Sudan, including those committees. So uh, I'll put the link to that in the show notes for anybody who wants to follow up on that particular case. I just want to come in a bit on um, on what John was saying and, and on David's question about, you know, um, how do we sort of make the case that uh, revolution is necessary, not, um, you know, just working through the existing sort of state machinery. Um, and I think for me, you know, a lot of uh, socialist theory on on this subject really tries to make the case in, in sort of a technical way, right? Explaining that, um, you know, objectively, the current state apparatus is hostile to socialism, is, is hostile to our goals and to redistribution um, because of real material economic factors, right? So just on a technical level, it's got to be revolution, right? Sorry. <laughs> but for me, I think I want a revolution because I think a revolution is is just. And because I, I, like, I'm angry looking around at the way that things are right now. I don't just want a revolution because you know, well, objectively, you know, unfortunately, the conditions call for it. I think anyone who looks around and, you know, sees that the people who are in power right now are letting people freeze to death downtown in Toronto, they're letting the cops kill people indiscriminately, you know, in the States, um, we have entire swaths of the political apparatus sort of terrorizing young queer and trans people. I think those people should be kicked out of the positions of power that they're in and kept out of them. Um, and I think a lot of people feel that way, right? A lot of people, um, I think, have a lot more motivation to be involved in it, that sort of active revolutionary process where all of us, the masses of people, are brought into the public sphere with all of the grievances and, and anger that we have <laughs> developed over you know, lifetimes of capitalist immiseration. And, um, you know, we built something totally new where this type of, of exploitation and systemic violence is is not allowed anymore. I think that's a much more attractive offer than, you know, well, you know, we just elect our guy and I promise it'll work this time, you know, even though it hasn't worked the last, uh, well, the every time we've elected our guy and everything stays the same. Um, and I think, you know, whether we, we like it or not, um, climate catastrophe, which keeps coming up in this discussion, but I think reasonably so, um, does kind of necessarily mean that things are going to radically change. Um, I think it's just a matter of how they radically change, um, and whether or not we, and I mean, the very, very broad we as the working class are able to take the reins, um, and I, I think if you look at crisis situations that, um, you know, have happened over the past decade or so, especially, um, you know, uh, ecological disasters and things like that, you do um, see some really inspiring examples of mutual aid of people um, sort of taking matters into their own hands, creating um, these sort of ad hoc forms of organization and resource redistribution and uh, things like that. Ideally, they, those forms would be um, you know, more organized and connected with each other so that we could be as efficient as possible. Um, and I think that's where, you know, we have to start doing that, that groundwork before things get to a crisis point. So, um, you know, we know uh, what resources we have to draw on. We know um, who's 
good at what and um like we have established networks of, of people who have the same goals and yeah i agree with you james about sort of this inevitability of um i mean it's one path of the two potential inevitabilities i guess um the inevitability of uh of socialist revolution and of like violent struggle as part of that socialist revolution and i also feel yeah, I think it's it's an open question to me, and it feels like a really delicate thing to talk about. How do we sort of abhor every drop of blood that is spilled while understanding that, as John says, the ruling class is not going to just hand over the reins, um, and also that we cannot use existing state structures for socialist ends, um, that we have to build things anew and we have to wrest power from the powerful um, and how do we do that understanding that it's going to require revolution and that that revolution is going to require a certain amount of violence and that that violence is likely justified because of the violence that we live under under capitalism right now? And also, how do we not develop an appetite for that kind of violence or um, begin to use violence as an end in and of itself rather than a means to an end? another question rather than an answer that I am showing up with, but um, one that has been preoccupying me. Although, you know, maybe I'm kind of putting the cart before the horse right now. <laughs> I, I, I just, for myself, I suspect when we get to the, when we get to the question of the need to deploy revolutionary violence, um, the level of violence that people already will have experienced uh, in, in the attempt to forestall it will, will sort of, not make it that much of a moral dilemma. I think it will be it'll be seen as something that's uh, that's necessary and, and justified. And I, I think of an Iranian comrade I know who uh, was involved in very violent uh, armed uh, armed struggle, and he said that uh, he he understood that what he had to do in many ways was 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 grim, but but he felt that he was motivated by by the love of people and, and the desire to build a, a just society. And it, didn't, he didn't feel that he was corrupted by by, by violent struggle. Um, I, I, the, the dangers of the dangers of uh, of uh, deploying violence uh, needlessly or deploying violence on the wrong side. Well, there's plenty of examples of that to show that it's not a frivolous concern. But uh, but I think we uh, I, I think we uh, an ascendant movement that actually involves a mass of people can can, in my opinion, overcome those problems. Yeah, I think there's, we definitely are quite a ways away from these questions becoming practical. Um, and, you know, it's like, as is right now, uh, we are facing just this sort of daily onslaught of social murder um, that is, is so incalculable, right? When you, when you think about it, um, like every little ramification of, of capitalism that sort of butterfly effects out and uh, causes harm and, and death and illness. And we're sort of living in like this aerobaros of human misery right now. Um, and I think that does, <laughs> uh, like John said, I think that does justify quite a lot. Um, but I don't know, I guess I think about it in the terms of like, um, I've been going to a lot of um, like queer community events recently and with the political atmosphere that we're in um like we've started to have you know someone at the door to 
like make sure that people who are coming in are coming in to be at the event and not to hurt people, um, which is very scary, obviously. But um, like when you're in these spaces and you see people, you know, connecting with each other and, and um, you know, expressing themselves and sort of building this like tiny microcosm of um, like human connection and joy amidst very, very bleak circumstances, um, the idea of just having to protect that having to protect the what we can build together that is good. Um, it doesn't necessarily feel, yeah, like a, a violent or, or hateful thing. It feels like something we're doing out of love for each other. Um, and I think that needs to be sort of the core of what we're doing. The focus is that we are trying to build something better and ultimately to put an end to um, this very, very violent stage um, of human development and um, I think we can have um, like we can focus maybe on a, a desire for liberation more than a desire for revenge if that's a good way of putting it. So I'd like to move us now to talk about um, the most difficult set of issues really I think um, what people used to call the tasks for socialists <laughs> in jargony terms but the question of you know for those of us who, who do share this commitment in so-called Canada um, a commitment to, you know, the idea that socialism is necessary, possible, and, and worth fighting for, you know, given that there are limited numbers of people and there are limited amounts of time, where would people should actually be, you know, or what, what people should actually be doing with their with their time and energy. Um, and bearing in mind that, I, mean, I guess, three of the four of us have been members of socialist organizations um, and aren't at the moment, <laughs> I think, um, which speaks to perhaps to the, you know, the state of the socialist left, um, in this society, um, which is a definite element of the problem that we're we're grappling with. But would anybody like to start by sharing some thoughts about priorities, tasks, um, where we where we where we work, how we work? Which is recognizing that there's not a single. It's not like everyone should be doing one thing, right? And want to just get that out of the way. There are clearly many different important, uh, valuable things that people can be working on. But uh, thoughts on that to start us off? Um, well, I'll just. I'll say something to begin. I, I, I mean, I think we've all, we've all that that term, the vanguard, is uh, is hanging over the uh, is hanging over the discussion in some ways. Um, and I, I think we've all seen. I mean, the, the the concept of the vanguard, I think, needs to be discussed seriously politically anyway. But one thing we can all agree is that there's been a profusion of uh, people who can, you know, uh, people who are sharing a taxi cab with a bunch of their mates consider themselves to be the continuity of revolutionary leadership and such like. And that has become a bit of a, a disorientating factor. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I must say, reject the concept of political leadership. Um, I wish that the language was somewhat allowed for, for that term to be more nuanced and explored uh than it is but i do think the notion that a lead must be given and that there must be political ideas and strategies put forward is is correct i think that 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 i don't think there is just going to be this you know ultra spontaneity that, that, that that's going to that's going to happen there is going to have to be uh people are going to have to fight for ideas and people are going to have to advance ways forward and such like and that will require forms of political organization um I think also we're, we're at, at this period coincides with a crisis of uh, 
socialism as a force that can provide leadership for a whole series of reasons. I mean, David mentioned Stalinism. Uh, Stalinism certainly turned off a lot of people, but what it also did was very seriously warped a whole uh, generation of socialists. Uh, and that the legacy of that is still with us. We've still got enormous levels of disorientation uh, that, 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 that exist. Um, and those who seek a way forward are themselves divided. There is, you know, there's real problems here. Um, I, I'm, I believe that the building of some mass organization party remains a possibility, but I don't think that we could identify any group of people sitting around in a basement somewhere that are the, uh, that we could say there's the nucleus of it. Um, at the present moment, I, I think it's realistic to think of, I and mean, there's an acute need to intervene. And I think there is going to have to be levels of cooperation amongst people that have some significant differences. Uh, I don't think there's a possibility of getting together, renting a hall and bringing together people and hammering out the manifesto for the, uh, that's just not a realistic option at this particular point in my view. So I do think, yes, uh, uh, we got, we, we, there are more questions than answers to this. Absolutely. But we have to begin to think in terms of we've got this absolute crisis of effective social resistance at the moment. And there are ways forward. And how can we work together, those of us who share certain common assumptions, to take that forward? I think I hear sometimes from people on the left this idea of like whatever you are trying when it comes to leftist struggle is good that you know we're in this kind of like throwing pieces of spaghetti at the wall stage of uh, late capitalism um and I don't know you have all of these infographics circulating about um people's different role in leftist struggles based on what their skills are what kind of person they are it's kind of like those you know enneagram tests or something that like tells you what your place in the world is and yeah it's it's kind of putting forward this idea that people just need to get involved and try everything and in some ways I see the value of that like I think we do need to be encouraging each other to get involved in the organizations that already exist to move out of this space of inertia and demobilization and just you know get some boots on the ground and have people start doing work, whatever that work may be with whatever skills they do have. And then also, I think that we need to seriously talk about strategy and coordination um, and thinking strategically about what struggles exist, where they are likely to go from, you know, uh, minor struggles to mass struggles and where organized socialists would be able to help that struggle widen or spark into a mass struggle or overflow its bank. So for example, what John was talking about when it comes to educator struggles and how if there had been more organized rank and file workers who they may have been able to prevent labor leadership for settling for these shitty compromises that tinker around the edges of capitalism. So I think also trying to hold those two things together and trying to say to people, wherever you are and whatever you can do, start, and also to invite them to think strategically about where they are and what they can do. So for myself, um, I'm primarily an editor. 
sometimes also a writer. I work a lot on media and I see media as, I think some people who who work in leftist media see media as an end in and of itself or think that, you know, if we just put out the right magazine, <laughs> that's going to make the revolution happen. Um, and that's not true. So seeing it as one very specific tool in a, in a wider toolbox, um, but understanding how it interacts with other people in struggle um, and thinking about where to put our energies within media. So one thing I've been thinking about recently is there's a new publication in Toronto called The Grind that was started by um, a number of people, but primarily my former colleague, David Gray Donald, who used to work as the publisher of Briar Patch. Um, and I think it's really interesting because it's such a different form of media than Briar Patch. Briar Patch is this 40 page magazine that comes out six times a year and it goes out mostly to, um, to, as the physical print magazine to paying subscribers and arrives on their doorstep. And then it's also, um, available online for free. And it's read by, you know, people who are mostly university educated, who are already fairly well versed in leftist language and um, and issues. And The Grind is doing something different, um, in part because of its form. It's uh, a newspaper, an alt-weekly sort of in the style of the now mostly defunct now Toronto. Um, and it's being disseminated in TTC stations and I've gone around with Dave and dropped off copies of The Grind at, um, you know, like little restaurants and places where people grab a quick bite to eat and coffee shops and uh, bookstores. And the way that it's moving through the city is so different from the way that um, Briar Patch is moving through the city or through the country. And there's so much energy around The Grind and people have so much appetite for, you know, this thing that feels like it can reach people where they're at. And a lot of the time, you know, when we, when Dave goes into um, a coffee shop or something and the cover of the grind, I wish I had a cover with me right now, but the cover of the grind has like the big grotesque faces of John Tory and Doug Ford on the front and, you know, just saying something derogatory about it. And the workers love it and they laugh when they see it and they're like, yeah, absolutely put it out. And then their managers predictably, um, or the owners of their companies predictably hate it. Um, and yeah, just disseminating something that feels so vital, that feels full of life, that feels like it's reaching those people who we talked about before, who feel that there are big problems with capitalism and that their lives are getting worse and that the current economic and social systems are failing them and putting something in their hands that tells them that things could be different and shows them who's already working on those things and shows them how to get involved. That feels really life affirming to me, really vital to me. Um, and so that's one thing that I'm working on. I highly recommend getting involved in, in left-wing media work for people who like media, feel moved by media, are good at making media. Um, and also for those people to have a little bit of humility because they sometimes don't have the necessary humility and to understand the role of media within um, a wider landscape or a bigger toolbox of socialist struggle. I really, um, I really like what you said about how, you know, we're all sort of trying our best to interface in like the, with the skills that we have right? and how that's sort of different for everybody. 
um, I think for me, um, I'm very much coming from the place that like, um, I guess what I've decided to do, um, you know, in the interim right now where there isn't sort of a, a mass revolutionary upswing, um, is just doing my best to keep the people who have been, um, you know, had those negative experiences with capitalism that you kind of need to have, uh, on some level to realize how much it sucks just to keep those people alive, uh, for the time being, because they're, I think are, are so many people with the way that our society works that, um, you know, all the ingredients are there for them to be a revolutionary militant, but um, because things are so bleak right now and, and can often feel so hopeless and because people are so isolated, it's very unfortunately easy for those people to slip into like complete uh, demoralization or, or to um, sort of go down um, all sorts of um, bad roads and um, wind up in a bad place. So I'm just, I guess, doing what I, I can to, um, you know, let people know that we need them here and that there um, is uh, something that we can actually do about this. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about political organizing uh, in our current context, um, that sort of bleakness, I guess, and, and isolation, um, it's a hard thing to overcome. Um, I think a lot of us, especially like, um, don't really know how to interact with other people as well as we will need to um, to do a revolution. I think there are skills that we need to develop, um, like working together, communicating and, and collaborating across difference. Um, and uh, uh, Samuel, like you were saying with uh, Rosa Luxemburg, right, with the uh, organizing being sort of the flexing of, of those muscles that we're going to need to develop. Um, to actually win, um, even just organizing in small ways, I think uh, does uh, teach us something, even if ultimately we realize that you know, it was unproductive. Um, I think in terms of like vanguard sects, um, I'm not sure necessarily if that form of organizing helps build those muscles as well as we would hope, right? I think it uh, a sect produces maybe someone who's really good at going to meetings with other people who have all read the same books, um, but doesn't necessarily produce people who are good at intervening in the real movement and sort of meaningfully changing the course of events, um, which is more so what we need right now. Um, so I guess um, I really don't have the the answers on organizational forms. I think, I mean, no one does. If, if anyone did, I think we'd be in a much better position. Um, but uh, I can say at least right now, I'm, I'm very attracted to sort of um, coalitional politics of, of shared interests and struggle and sort of recognize shared um, sources of, of suffering, right? Like I have been doing organizing recently, um, uh, like locally in Toronto, and there are a lot of different um, like groups and organizations that all recognize that the Toronto police and city council are prioritizing corporate and uh, real estate interests over oppressed and working class people. And um, I think that's good. <laughs> it's good to see um, definitely still uh, an uphill battle, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's really good to see people uh, recognizing that they have interests in common across difference. And I think those are, um, at least for now, we're, that's where I'm going to be putting my energy. Um, but I'm excited to see how things change. And I'm excited to see what people come up with, uh, both out of creativity and necessity over the coming years.
just to, to pick up on something that you said, James, I think that um, the importance of trying to be constructively involved where we see people in motion is so critical. And I think that we need to be a socialist. We need to be really curious um, and, and have a kind of outlook of curiosity to see what moves and where people be, do begin to take action in ways that may not be where we expect it to come from or in the forms that we might expect it and to try to then be constructive participants in that wherever possible so that we can uh, learn through that process and contribute politically, um, you know, in terms of how we think we can help take the struggle forward. Certainly, I know in my experience, I was quite involved in climate justice organizing in Winnipeg where I live for from mid-2019 into, into 2021, and I learned a lot working with you know, people much younger than me, mostly, um, in that in that experience. And I do think that for the longer that people have been socialists and around on the socialist left, the more important it is to uh, not, you know, just rest on your laurels or, or operate on the basis of assumptions that were formed in, in previous periods, but to try to be curious about where um, things might be moving and to try to participate and, and learn from, from those experiences. Um, and I think that's, that is really important. And to the extent that we could then try to have people doing that uh, in different places and in different sectors of struggle to connect with each other and share experiences um, and talk about how we can more effectively try to, to be socialist organizers wherever we are. Uh, I think that's, um, that was an approach we should be trying to, to argue for wherever we wherever we can and to cut against the tendency that you can I think this is something which doesn't just affect people who've been reds for a long time but sometimes people who are pretty newly uh, radicalized and considering themselves uh, socialists um, to avoid the problem of of abstaining from things that don't meet your standards um, that you know, are seen as being not mm-hmm. sufficiently radical um, there's still such a terrible tendency to kind of clump together um, rather than to uh, to to seek out um, and, and and engage and participate uh, in uh, in the places where people are are beginning to go into motion. Yeah, I feel like the point that David and James made like really resonates with me. That James, what you said about how we just we need to get better at talking to people and working with people are better than we currently are at it, and that involves you know and and, and those skills for a lot of us have atrophied during the pandemic as we are stuck inside our homes or sort of on these sometimes strange uh, social spaces of Zoom meetings. Um, and um, and also for me that that means getting good at um, exercising our muscle of democracy, of, you know, what actually participating in democratic um, member-driven organizations looks like. And also getting better at addressing conflict and harm within or our organizations. I think that is sort of the, the next level of, you know, getting good at, at talking to people and working it with people is looking at what are the hardest parts of talking to people and working with people. And it's um, when we're in struggle with them, when we're in organizations with them and, um, and people are being hurt and, you know, how do we, how do we work through that? So for me, it's kind of a, a continuum there. But I definitely think that for myself, that's something um, I feel like is important to to work on. And and I see it around me and I've seen so many organizations. I'm sure we've all seen so many organizations fall apart um, because of 
both very serious and very petty reasons of people not knowing how to work together to move through conflict um, and to keep each other safe while we're organizing. Yeah, no, I just, I want to say I totally agree with that. And um, I think my sort of experience in that area was um, what really attracted me to um, like a lot of uh, abolitionist writing. Um, I think right now there's a lot of really interesting um, work that people are doing and kind of theorizing how we can relate to one another and um, like repair harm and then deal with this, um, you know, uh, conflict in much better ways um, than we currently do. I think capitalism really doesn't give us the tools to have healthy relations with each other, right? Um, and it can feel like that's something that, you know, will just sort of like naturally come after transformative social change is that on sort of a more micro level, our relationship with each other will become healthier. Um, but definitely from looking around at the kind of um, landscape of um, organizations that all fall apart for the same reasons, it becomes pretty clear that we need to start doing what we can to transform the way that we interact with each other um, and deal with conflict um, before uh, we get to a, a revolutionary point, because we can't get to that point unless we can um, like actually build communities together that, that function and that keep people uh, safer than they currently are. Just to say as well, I think the, I mean the, the the political ideas of socialism have an enormous relevance to the struggles that we're engaged in now, but they're never going to be applied by people who think who who enter movements thinking they know what needs to be done, and, and simply come in and say, you know, listen, this is the plan, this is what you need to be doing, uh, uh, this is how you have to deal with the employer, this is how you have to deal with the cops, this is what I mean. There's no possible way anyone any serious socialist who is looking to begin to intervene in movements must consider it that they've got a huge amount to learn and must conduct themselves respectfully. And I mean, I've seen so many examples. I, I remember one time watching some somebody from a, an unnamed political group uh, intervening in a, a, a inter, intervening with a, a meeting in which a bunch of Palestinian people were putting forward their perspective. And he was explaining to them why their ideas were completely wrong and what needed to happen in Palestine. And he, as they as they put forward their arguments, he looked at them with this kind of patronising, you know, these people obviously don't understand anything about Palestine sort of attitude. It re reached the level of complete, I mean, that's an extreme uh, manifestation, but I think it's, it's it has been part of the, uh, of, of the problem. Um, there's, this is a, an incredibly we really are in uncharted waters in so many ways in this in, in this present period. And if socialism is going to be applied meaningfully, it's going to have to be applied. Uh, it, there's going to be a huge learning process involved and a huge deal of experimentation involved. Yeah, the waters are uncharted, but we can we can take a compass, if you like, from the past, if we can use that metaphor, right? Like that's the, the socialist theory should give us tools to try to yeah. navigate, but it doesn't tell us you know, what, what seas we're sailing on. Dead right, dead right. <laughs> and I think the, the question of, for, for people who are in socialist organizations, uh, you know, the, the, the better one or ones um, that have actually, or members have actually had some meaningful experience in social struggle, there's the importance of, of humility and not overgeneralizing from those experiences, right? Because um, I think that that's, 
and, and recognizing the specificity of the experience. And we've had an experience in a particular province at a particular time um, that's valid and important and worth learning from. But we're living in a society, you know, it's a very uh, complex society, you know, over an enormous geographical space, you know, the Canadian state. Um, and I think that there's a, I'll just throw in a, one, one piece of that, I think, is that there's a history of people trying to, for example, build Toronto-centric organizations and generalizing from the experience of that particular place uh, across the entire Canadian state, which is really, is just silly. Um, I think the significant social organizations will only be built by the coming together of projects that are going to initially be regional or local. Um, and there'll have to be some, you know, processes of dialogue, joint work, and hopefully eventual unification that uh, are built out of those, those different places. And, uh, and anyone who thinks their existing organization is going to be the basis of simply through cloning or something, you know, um, of, from one region uh, to, to become the organization that will be uh, in its current form, but larger, the thing that we need across the entire Canadian state, I think is, is just not, not very serious about, about that. So I think there are, I think there are people in the existing organizations who I would, who I consider comrades and I think, you know, have important contributions to make, but uh, and their organizations can sometimes play significant roles on a small scale, but uh, where we're at is just that none of those organizations, as was said before, are the nucleus of thing that we could call a party. And so there needs to be, a, even for people who think their particular social organizations are, you know, the one they want to be in, and they're very confident in them, um, the fact that they haven't convinced, you know, huge numbers of people that that's the case means that there needs to be that humility and a willingness to to uh, to work together on the basis of responding to the challenges and the struggles that we that we face any other thoughts on the the question of socialist organization i guess just real quick i totally agree with what you just said i think um we do need some sort of organizational body or bodies plural um because i mean individually we are fundamentally disempowered as working class people um so we do need to organize to win um, and ideally, um, you know, learn from each other's struggles and, and share what we've learned, even though it is contextual with that um, very, very necessary humility. Um, but I think that whatever that, that looks like, it can't just be declared and especially declared by, um, you know, people who probably live in Toronto and are at least to some extent removed from um, the really like horror spheres of um, production, right? Like uh, there was, like I, I think about when um, the big wave of Amazon uh, unionizing started. Not that many socialist organizations were involved or even aware that that was happening until the news broke, right? Um, and I think that shows that there's kind of a disconnect between uh, where a lot of theorizing happens and where sort of on the ground organizing in the places that it's the most disruptive to capital um, are occurring. So I think I, ideally I'd like to see um, a meaningful sort of bridging of the two. Um, obviously, I think political theory is very, very important, um, but sort of practically learning those organizing skills are also invaluable. And um, I think, uh, you know, even if we're not doing things um, in the best way we could be doing them and, and we're making mistakes, that's still, vital experience that's um, going to be necessary for us to take forward. Um, so yeah, just, I'd like to see more of that. And I think it's worth mentioning too, that uh, 
and this may be relevant to some people listening to the podcast, that, uh, you know, it's all, almost always possible for socialists to form local reading groups, study circles, so that they have a space to, um, to come together with like-minded people. Hopefully, you know, this is not an alternative to being involved in, in broader um, organizing through a union or in a community organization of some kind. Um, but just because, you know, you're not, you know, part of a, a larger socialist group because there isn't one where you are or you're not, uh, you know, politically confident in any of the existing groups, that doesn't mean that people can't be engaged in some of that, um, those kinds of conversations where, you know, you could have um, opportunities to come together and, and discuss things and invite other activists into those spaces so that there is a, a kind of a, a ferment, even if it's a, at a very low level, of political conversation that's informed by experiences of organizing, but not in the same spaces as the actual organizing, right? And it's those uh, study groups, discussion circles, and so on that could potentially help generate new political organizations on a local level or perhaps beyond that. And I do think we should try to encourage people to absolutely not be insular, to get out there and, and be involved if you're not already involved in some form of um, activity that you think is, is significant, um, whether in the workplace or the community, but in addition to look for those opportunities to bring together people who are uh, curious about socialist ideas uh, and so on, because it's it's wonderful now that we there's so many uh, opportunities to listen to you know Zoom panels and podcasts and so on, but that's um, a pretty one way right um, forum for engaging with socialist ideas, and there's no substitute for people actually talking amongst themselves. Um, so that it's less of a solitary process, right? Um, to just, you know, read or listen or watch on your own. Um, and it, it's it's wonderful that there's so many people who are doing it on YouTube or, or wherever else. But we do need those other spaces where people can can talk with each other and uh, talk talk through ideas wherever possible, um, you know, among, among like-minded people in the same, in the same place. Could, could I perhaps just make the point that um, perhaps begin to move towards a close here. I, I, it just seems to me that this whole discussion has been really healthy in a couple of ways. I mean, it's registered a certain level of uncertainty that I think reflects the realities of uh, of fighting for socialism in, in, in the present context. And in some ways, I think people that were more certain would have been uh, whistling in the dark at the moment. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, at an earlier period, discussion of people like us would have involved a great deal more certainty. And uh, I do think we need to reestablish that sense of certainty, but um, that is going to be a, a very difficult process and a very challenging process. But I must say, I, I came into this discussion with us, which I've had for a while, a strong sense that socialism was by no means inevitable, but entirely possible. And, and I do say everything that's been said here has reinforced that sense for me. I think we're at a really incredible time uh, and I think there's real possibilities and there's going to be an incredible fight. And, and I'd finally just like to endorse uh, James's point that I think that, um, that we need, we don't need revolutionary change. We don't need revolution simply because it's the right move to make on the chessboard at this moment. We need to make it because it's going to be bloody marvellous and, uh, and there, is, uh, the, there is nothing more worthwhile than the struggle to defeat the present anachronistic backward society we live in and create one that's really worthy of people. Perhaps we will end it there. 
unless someone else would like to uh, to jump in. John, thank you. The mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. This I think this is great and. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>